I don't know how many generations down the road, one or two or three it might be, but these changes are driving the, the habitability of the planet into domains it has never been, not only in human life, but in any phase of history that we can understand through the geological record. It's evolving in those directions at rates that we've never seen in, in any of the scientific records we have. Welcome to a special episode of the Esri in the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard the first American woman to walk in space, Kathy Sullivan, talk about the significance of considering Earth's deep time history to inform sustainability measures in the present age. Your Esri chief scientist and fellow oceanographer Don Wright lead a fascinating conversation about Dr. Sullivan's recent expedition to the deepest part of the ocean and how scientific endeavors past and present can help solve the most difficult challenges to civilization. Kathy, welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. We are so excited. Hi, Don. Great to be with you. So we have got to start with what happened this summer, because in addition to, to being the first American woman to walk in space, you became this summer the first woman to travel to the deepest point in the ocean, seven miles deep approximately, to a place called Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench. So this fantastic achievement, in addition to being on three uh, space shuttle missions, blows everybody's mind. And one of the things that is so interesting about this is the, the ability to uh, explore our world in different ways. So I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective on that, why it's important to continue to explore the world, to explore the earth, in different ways from these different perspectives? Sure. Well, I guess where I would start on that is to me, real exploration to drive deeper understanding of this planet and how it works, which should matter to all of us. It is our life support system in every way imaginable, providing us the oxygen we depend on, providing us the food that we depend on, moderating our weather and climate. So just like I, as an astronaut, uh, had to really know uh, intimately every facet of how my spacecraft worked. Uh, we should be striving to understand deeply every facet of how this planet works. And one of the most notable things about the uh, expedition that I got to be on with Victor Vescova this past summer uh, is, to me, it's, it's how revolutionary the system is that Victor built. He commissioned the design and construction of the limiting factor submersible which is currently the only vehicle on earth that can take human beings to the full depth of the ocean. Why do I say that's so revolutionary? The 10 days that I spent at sea with Victor, we had three dives to full ocean depth in seven days. And just a few days later, he turned around and did it again with three dives to, to full ocean depth in seven days. So you know, to me, that's like saying, suddenly we have the ability to fly to the moon every week if we want to. It's that radical a change in our access to the oceans. It, it is absolutely remarkable what Victor and his team have done because in our uh, oceanographic community, we have been looking for that full ocean depth submersible capability for a long time. You know, as we gather much of what we know about the earth from, from these assets, from the agencies, the role of private companies or private adventurers 
is coming more to the fore. And now here comes uh, SpaceX. And I think the, the timing of that is, is very good. Would you, would you agree? I generally agree. I, I see some significant differences between uh, the public-private interaction in the space arena and the ocean arena. In the space arena, they are entrepreneurs as much as adventurers. But NASA and the United States as a country still have a need to be able to move people and cargoes uh, back and forth to space. It might be national security, payloads, Air Force satellites, NASA satellites, and so on. NASA used to operate the airline that took things back and forth. And now private entities have built the capacity to own and operate an airline and NASA will buy the seats or the cargo tonnage that they need from them. What's different in the ocean so far is that the, the well-to-do individuals that have become curious about the ocean, in varying degrees, those individuals have engaged with the science community to ask the question of, since I have this capacity, what would be worth exploring? What would it be worth, to, worth doing? Mm -hmm. But it's a very different interplay between what the individual billionaire finds interesting and what the scientists say. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a fantastic point. We could have a whole podcast on that. I wanted to ask you about your emphasis in oceanography. I believe you were pursuing your PhD in oceanography uh, at the time that you, that you joined NASA. What was going on there? My fascination was uh, deep sea volcanic activity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I went to graduate school at Dalhousie University, which is in Nova Scotia, Canada. And uh, as it turns out, I ended up uh, you know, owning, as it were, a piece of the seafloor that lies east of the Grand Banks, so the, the deep sea floor, on the edge of Canada's continental margin. And it was an area that uh, several ships and including a number of research ships had passed through on their way to other places, but no one had ever stopped and studied it carefully. And so I, um, I, I somewhat stumbled into this project as it turns out, um, uh, made those maps, uh, dredged up rocks from the, these um, dormant volcanoes to check and confirm, are they really volcanoes? Uh, what can we learn about their chemistry? What can we learn about how old they are? And the, the punchline of all of this was this little piece of seafloor came into being in the very early stages of Iberia, so the west coast of Spain and Portugal, uh, used to lie right up against the Grand Banks. And around about 65-ish million years ago, uh, those two bits began to rip apart. And it's, it was a pretty messy ripping apart. So slivers and bits got left different places and volcanic magma uh, starts to get created and seep up through all the cracks. And so these seamounts and the magnetic patterns in this little patch of seafloor had basically recorded this early history of Iberia and Newfoundland uh, ripping apart from each other back when. It was super cool to own a piece of seafloor. And because I made the first uh, you know, properly detailed maps of the region, I actually got to name the seamounts Absolutely fantastic. I love it. So that, that makes me wonder, though, even further, uh, what motivated you to apply to NASA? I, you know, a couple of things motivated me to switch gears and try for NASA. I, I'd been going to sea on a research expedition since my senior year at university. I loved being at sea. I loved the operational aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I felt like working up the data and writing the papers was kind of penance 
that you had to pay so you could go out to see the next year. So I knew, I knew what my favorite part of the game was. Um, satellite oceanography was sort of just coming into its own. And I was sort of entranced with the very, the synoptic view. You know, you could see not just the little patch of seafloor that I studied at 12 knots, but you could see a whole ocean basin. And, you know, what might that let us understand about the ocean that we'd, we'd maybe never get to if we had to build that knowledge, you know, tiny little patch by tiny little patch. And then the final bit was pure serendipity. Uh, my, I have one sibling, an older brother. He's the airplane and flying crazy guy in our family. Uh, and I went home for Christmas vacation. It, uh, I guess it would have been 19, 1976. My brother had been following the, the NASA space shuttle selection closely, mm. and he started encouraging me to apply, pointing out that they're, they're actively urgently seeking and encouraging women and minorities to apply. And you know, how many 26-year-old female PhDs can there be it was kind of his big sales point. Uh, I, you know, I dismissed it at first because I was thinking it's hard enough to study the deep sea floor from the surface, 15,000 feet above. You know, going 200 miles further away makes no sense if, if what you're trying to be is still that oceanographer. But as I thought about it a little more in, in the weeks following, I realized that was not the correct way to look at it. NASA was building a research vessel and NASA was going to need someone. They had created a role uh, on that research vessel that was sort of a hybrid between the ship's chief engineer on our oceanographic research ships and the chief scientist. And they were looking someone for someone who could fill that role. Understand the space shuttle and all of its equipment, know how to operate all that, but also understand the science mm -hmm. or the objectives of each mission and, and serve as a proxy for the scientists or engineers that are, they're not gonna get to come along on the space flight like I used to get to come along on an oceanographic ship. So you would be their eyes and ears and hands and operate on their behalf. And when I got that insight, it's like what you can have a whole career that's like you're planning missions and going to sea, except it's in, it's in outer space and you'll get to see the earth with your own eyes. It was just an irresistible prospect. By the way, if I had not been selected by NASA, I had a firm alternative in, in my hand and it would have included diving to the deep sea floor of the Atlantic in Alvin. Mm. So I was, I was going to have grand grand expeditions either way. And I was, my mother was not entirely thrilled about this. You're going 200 miles up or 6,000 feet down. <laughs> you know, not, not what a mother wants to hear, yeah. uh, but I was thrilled. My, my mother had the same trepidation ab about me. Uh, my first Alvin dive was as a graduate student and uh, my mother was, she panicked a little bit, but <laughs> then our, our mothers <laughs> get over it. Given the synoptic the overall view of the planet that we now have, uh, even a school child can go into the Esri Living Atlas or into Google Earth or go to, to NASA's sites or to NOAA's uh, comprehensive websites and see how this planet is, is changing. So it's amazing to so many of us that we have this struggle in terms of, of helping people to understand climate change and how it is probably the most important issue facing humanity today. Can you share with us what your perspective is along those lines, what's happening with, with climate change and what is the most critical thing for us to understand and to do? Well, I tend to point out to people that, you know, the, the physics 
the physics of how gases like water vapor and carbon dioxide work in our atmosphere was worked out 100 years ago. I also remind people, you, you absolutely do live on a greenhouse planet and you should be thankful that you live on a greenhouse planet because the greenhouse effect in our atmosphere is the only reason it's possible for us and every other living thing uh, to exist on earth. Uh, and you know, the predominant greenhouse gas in our atmosphere is water vapor. So we live on a natural greenhouse. It has been through warming periods and ice ages. All of that is true. But you somehow have to deal with the fact that a scientist named Charlie Keeling, close to 70 years ago now, marching every month to the top of a volcano in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Mauna Loa, and filling a super clean jar, a cylinder with air, and taking it back to the lab and just measuring what's there and plotting that. And it's called the Keeling Curve. Uh, you can see the planet breathing. You see carbon dioxide levels go up in the northern hemisphere winter when leaves have fallen away and plants are not storing so much carbon. They go down in the summertime. It's a regular sawtooth. And you see slowly that curve is rising and then the rate at which it's rising gets steeper and steeper and steeper. That's just inarguable. To try to ignore or argue that would be like going to your doctor who's been plotting your weight for 10 years and he's now got you at 500 pounds and you want to try to argue that there's not really a weight gain problem. I also remind people that planet Earth is going to be just fine. Uh, the this, this solar system will still have a third planet, you know, third one out from the sun. The question is, what is viable to live on that third rock? Uh, and this is where some of the, the uh, comparative planetology uh, uh, that NASA studies have revealed over the last decades can be helpful. Because the mounting clear evidence that uh, Mars in some distant past uh, may well have been more habitable, may well have had uh, water and flowing water, flowing liquid at any rate, uh, and it, which implies a very different kind of atmosphere than Mars has now. So Mars is kind of a reminder that the, uh, the, the nature of a planet and the, the kinds of phenomena and life that it can support can change radically over very long times, and, and that's part of the problem. Uh, it's a little too easy for all of us critters that live, you know, 60, 70, 80 years to say, not gonna bother me, you know, <laughs> Earth's not gonna turn into Mars in the time frame that I'm around. And that's certainly true. I don't know how many generations down the road, one or two or three it might be, but uh, that's what we should be focusing on is the, these changes are driving the, the habitability of the planet into, into domains it has never been, not only in human life, but in any, in any phase of history that we can understand through the geological record. Uh, and it's, it's evolving in those directions at rates that we've never seen in, in any of the scientific records we have. Really, really important for us to, to realize the, the reality, to trust the, these generations of scientific measurements. And a lot of the listeners uh, of our podcast are business executives. So I would like to, to pivot a little bit and ask from your perspective, what are some of the ideas that you have that the business community can take on to help mitigate climate change? It, that's a tricky proposition because most commonly the time horizons that are pertinent to business decisions in, in today's world are, are quite short term. And so, you know, I think that 
prospect of changing climate, you know, changing av availability and scarcity of water, changing temperature environments that affect crops and fisheries, all of those cascading effects, those are things that different businesses and different sectors, uh, I think, do pay some attention to and monitor and are concerned about because they pose risks to the future viability of that business. But you have two two quandaries that make it hard for a company to act on those. One is climate predictions are typically out of the decade to multi-decade timeframe, and they're not very granular. For intelligence to be useful, whether that's military intelligence or environmental intelligence, it has to be uh, a, with a level of reliability and a level of granularity that matches up with the decisions that someone's facing. Um, and delivered in a timely fashion. And that's what I was, when I was administrator of NOAA, was trying to probe with you know, the reinsurance industry, um, uh, Bank of England, the New York Stock Exchange. What, what improvements in reliability or granularity or timeliness of delivery or focus on certain climate variables, not every variable under the sun? Mm -hmm. What changes uh, of those sorts might NOAA make that would make what NOAA can give you more pertinent and more actionable in your world. And I think the, my conclusion is the answer really comes into uh, the, the, the next sweet spot for decision-making is not a 50-year climate outlook. It's a two to 10-year or maybe to 20-year, you know, think of the time frame of mortgages and, and capital leases. So, you know, how do I get there? Because I think to me, what I'm talking about when I think about climate vulnerability in the business community, it, it's a it's a variation on business continuity planning mm -hmm. that asks companies to think about a longer time frame uh, and your 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 ability, your resiliency against these kinds of risks, so you have a, a viable business over a long time frame. Mm -hmm. But the present the urgency of business continuity planning and profitability in the near term tends to supplant time and attention. Uh, and consideration of longer term challenges. So how do you deal with uncertainty as an executive? How, how positive are you this risk will affect me? Uh, that, the answer to that question will play a big role in how uh, a business responds, a company responds to a risk. To ask companies to proactively uh, try to mitigate climate without some fairly direct connection to the economic viability of the company is a tall or impossible order uh, because of the obligation of corporate leaders uh, to look after the profitability, primarily the profitability and the return to shareholders. There's this whole discussion that's gotten a little more vibrant in the last couple of months about shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. And I think um, there's a little movement towards acknowledging that uh, company leaders sh should uh, keep shareholders strongly in focus, but they, the shareholders ought not necessarily to be the one and only priority that they drive to. But I think unless that covenant shifts towards the stakeholder capitalism direction, uh, we won't see much corporate action on climate change unless either government regulation imposes it or uh, the, certain, the uncertainty in climate models gets lower so that you can more, you have more confidence in how these factors are going to affect your business. Mm -hmm. What is helping you to be more optimistic about the future of our planet, having been uh, in outer space and into the deepest part of the ocean? I, I would say a couple of things. One is 
the mesmerizing combination of uh, elegance and fragility and power uh, mm. that you see when you look out the window at, at Earth. Um, it's, it, it is a spectacular place. I, I wish more of us completely understood the extraordinary privilege we have to have this uh, remarkable, luxuriant, uh, intricate uh, planet to live on. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I, as probably everyone always says, uh, I, you know, are the young folks inspire me. Uh, the young folks who are looking, who are feeling that the outlook before them is bleaker than they think it ought to be. Uh, and are you know, getting engaged sooner. Uh, they've got you know, different tools and techniques at their disposal than you and I had when we were their age. Uh, and I'm encouraged by the number of them uh, that are you know, acting, acting up and acting out and trying to use social media, use the tools at their disposal to rally effort towards these grand purposes. Uh, and they're, they're very encouraging. A fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Kathy. We've been very honored to, to have you on our podcast. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Don. Thank you for listening to the Esri in the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Kathy Sullivan for walking us through the most important barriers and solutions to a sustainable global society. To learn more about location intelligence and solutions for sustainability, visit Esri.com.